You must be at least 18 years of age to listen to the following podcast. I am Robert Black, and you are listening to Sexual Heroes. Dr. Stephen Davidson is a psychotherapist and clinical sexologist in private practice in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. He has over 30 years experience working with individuals and couples on matters related to sexuality and relationships. He is the author of Sexual Integrity, Finding the Courage to Be Yourself. Colleagues and clients know him as the Sexual Integrity Coach. Hi, Dr. Davidson. Thank you for being on Sexual Heroes today. Hi. Good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you. We're here to talk about your book today, uh, Sexual Integrity, Finding the Courage to Be Yourself. And sometimes when I do an interview, I like to start with the end of the story. And so that's what I'm going to do right now. My first question to you, when somebody turns the last page of your book, they finish the book, turn the last page, what do you hope or want them to feel or think or do? I want them to reflect on the book, the message of the book, and where they are in their own life with that concept of sexual integrity. I want the book to be a way to to gauge your own evolution in that process of self-acceptance and really integrating into your life your sexuality as opposed to compartmentalizing it as uh, a separate part of yourself, something that you might think of more as an activity that you do, but not really who you are. Mm. Yeah. Cause it's, it's, it, sex is so important in our life. It just, it's, it's not like this tiny little sliver. It's a big deal. It is a big deal, but we are really groomed to think it is a tiny little sliver. Yeah. And that creates a lot of problems for us individually and certainly in relationships. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to tell you what I was thinking and feeling and what I did after turning the last page of your book. My, my thought was if I had read this at 20, it would have changed the trajectory of my life in a good way. And then I thought, if I had read this book at 30, it would have changed the trajectory. If I had read it at 40, or 50. But I read it this year at age 58. And you know what? It's already changed the trajectory of my life. Wow. Thank you so much. That is very affirming to hear that. And I've actually heard statements like that from a lot of people who have read the book. You know, if I could have read that book when I was 20, it would have changed the trajectory of my life. And it's really I think kind of ironic that I'm writing a book like that because I didn't begin my career with the intention of being a sex therapist. It just kind of happened. It it evolved. And very early on, I was uncomfortable 
with the subject of sex. I didn't want to talk to clients about sex, Mm -hmm. but I kept finding myself in situations working with people who I cared about. I wanted to help them. They had problems related to sexuality, uh, related to their relationships. And it really forced me to get more comfortable with the subject and to go back to school and get more training. Sexuality is not something that's usually dealt with in healthcare. You don't go into your primary care provider's office and they go through their, you know, if you're being assessed for the first time, nobody's going to ask you, so are you happy with your sex life? Right. It's just, it's never going to happen as important as it is to our well-being. And, and even if you go to your psychiatrists, you know, go see a psychiatrist, they're not going to ask you that. Your therapist isn't going to ask you that. Nobody asks that question. And yet it, it's so important to our well-being. Well, I talk about that in the book, the mm-hmm. fact that I was trained to be a therapist. I was licensed as a therapist, including licensed to diagnose and treat sexual disorders. But I was never required to take a single course in human sexuality. And my school was not unique. That was really the standard. Mm-hmm. It's the standard for med schools, for nursing schools, for psychologists, social workers, that there is not this training in human sexuality. You know, you're going to be out there in the world working with people that have sexual problems, but, you know, we might let you take a biology class or an anatomy class, but we're not going to teach you about sex. When you consider that the DSM, the book used by psychiatrists to diagnose or therapists to diagnose, when you consider it's full of diagnoses, then you wonder, well, why isn't there training to deal with those diagnoses? Right. Yeah. There's a whole section here that I didn't get trained on. (laughs) We covered everything else. Why did we leave this section out? So why is that? Uh, I think it's several reasons. I uh, Sex is a, a provocative subject. And in our society, we are a very sex negative culture. We're not comfortable dealing with the subject head on. Religion, politics, I think, are very influential in that. But for educational institutions to take on this subject and to teach it from a fact-based, science-based perspective would, you know, be too controversial. They rely on state funds. If they're state universities, they might lose some of those state funds, certainly in red states. They rely on the philanthropy of alumni. They might lose some of those donations if they're private educational institutions. And I think many universities, colleges just say, well, let's just avoid it. You know, there's no standard that we have to teach it. Let's just avoid it. And that way we avoid the controversy. Mm -hmm. The School of Sexology, where I got my PhD, was a freestanding school. And the schools of sexology in this country are all freestanding schools. They're not affiliated with major universities, because the major universities will not pick up this subject. Now, they're getting better about offering a sexology course through the psychology department, or the medical department, or the the nursing department. But to get a degree in clinical sexology, or human sexuality, very rare. 
in this country. To me, it seems unethical because you're leaving people, you're leaving your patients, the population that you're supposed to serve untreated. Yes. And, um, you know, something that I hear a lot from my clients, if they fall outside of mainstream, is that they spend a lot of time educating their healthcare providers about how to treat them, what kind of tests they need, what kind of immunizations they need, what kind of prescriptions they need. Mm -hmm. I hear repeatedly that a gay male client may talk to his provider about PrEP, his PCP, and want a Mm -hmm. prescription, and the PCP often doesn't even know that that exists. Mm-hmm. PrEP's been around for at least 10 years. The reason that a primary care provider will never ask you about your sex life and if you're happy is because they, if they ask the question, they have to be prepared to provide an intervention. And like you said, they don't, e- they didn't, if they don't know about PrEP, you know, they're not equipped to provide interventions in any way. Right. Uh, I'm going to read a little quote from your book. Just be yourself. It sounds simple, but it is one of the most difficult things to do. Why is that? Well, we try to present to the world what we believe the world can accept. I talk to people all the time about hiding. Uh, The cover of, of my book is a person removing a mask. And I use that cover because that's a a metaphor my clients use often in therapy. I feel like I'm hiding behind a mask. I feel like nobody really knows me. I feel like I am afraid to let people see me as I really am. You know, it's scary to be vulnerable because sometimes people don't like us and they won't accept us and they can't love us as we are. But I also say in the book, there's value in finding those people that do. And you can't find them if they can't see you. If they Mm -hmm. don't know who you are, you can't find the people who are going to love you as you are. Because you're hiding behind a mask. That makes so much sense. (laughs) Well, it does, but it's still difficult to achieve. We have to gradually take those risks to let people really know us and see us as we are. Yeah. Your book is just full of little ways to break down concepts and make them just so very simple. When it comes right down to it, I think this is the crux of the book. Just be yourself. And, and the whole book is about basically just that. So would you say that is basically the definition of sexual integrity? Uh, I think that's a real simple way to put it. I have defined it in a lot of different ways, uh, being authentic, walking your talk, telling your truth, integrating your sexuality into all aspects of your life and your relationships, instead of just thinking of it as an activity that you engage in a few times a week. And for some people, it's not even that often. Um <gasps> I know that's, it's scary, isn't it? But yes, it's, it's that simple to just be yourself, to lean into who you are instead of denying who you are. And that's really what the world kind of grooms us to do is to 
deny, to hide, to, uh, to repress. It's a problem in many relationships with couples. You know, they both enter the relationship wearing the mask. And then one day someone's mask slips and you get a glimpse of mm-hmm. another part of who they are. And, well, I didn't know you liked that. I didn't know you were into that. I didn't know you were doing that. And then that person feels deceived. They feel betrayed. And that's the value in being yourself all along is you're going to meet potential partners who like you the way you are. You're not entering anything from this place of deception. Mm -hmm. You know, we're basically good people. We don't want to lie and deceive, but usually we lie because we don't trust the other person with the truth. We are afraid it will drive them away. They'll leave us. They'll be hurt. They'll end the relationship. They'll go away. And we don't want that. So we give them a version of ourselves that we think they can accept. I mentioned earlier that the book changed my trajectory. And some people listening to this who know my past may say, well, how is that possible? I mean, you've been doing porn most of your adult life and all kinds of different porn. How could that possibly be? But it was just this past year in doing, doing the podcast has helped my helped me in addition to listeners who have written and told me about how it's helped them, but it's helped me just having these interviews and, and in reading your book, one of the ways my trajectory changed is I came to, I, I've come to identify with solo sexuality. I don't call myself solo sexual. I came up with my own term. I call it solo flexible because my primary enjoyment sexually comes from masturbation or baiting. I'm big in the bait scene right now. My listeners know that, but I do also enjoy from time to time having sex with obviously other men, uh, BDSM activities, but even in those situations, I prefer to get myself off. So I call it solo flexibility. I like the term, but it's not something I shared really until this past year. I kind of had two personas online. I was keeping my bait persona separate from my, my main Robert Black persona. Mm-hmm. And they're all blended together now. And if I may ask, mm-hmm. why did you keep that hidden? Because of things that you have said just in this discussion, because there's, um, I guess, mm, fear about, well, not how my partner's going to respond, but how my audience will respond, how, you know, people see me until the past year. Really, I don't even think I realized how normal <laughs> the bait scene is, how normal and big and yeah. And, and your book really makes you realize that no matter what your kink is, everybody's got kinks. I mean, just everybody and all kinds of different kinks. So whatever you've got going, as long as it's not illegal or you're hurting anybody, uh, you know, you're good to go. And there's, there's no reason why you can't share it. Absolutely. 
And, you know, masturbation is one of the safest and most pleasurable and most efficient expressions of sexuality. And lots of the couples that I work with, gay couples and straight couples, probably spend more time actually in solo sex than sex with a partner. And, you know, it's one of the things that I really try to get couples to talk about is their individual self-pleasure activity, because couples will keep that from each other, too. They'll, you know, one will hide in the garage, one will masturbate in the shower. Why are you hiding this from each other? Why can't you talk about it in your relationship? Mm -hmm. Why do you get out of bed in the middle of the night to go in the other room and masturbate? Why can't you masturbate right there in bed beside your partner? Maybe your partner will want to join, maybe not. But instead of hiding sexuality and carrying that kind of shame or ambivalence around it, why not just invite it into the house? Let it be a subject that you talk about freely. Well, my partner disclosed in an interview that I did just the other day that his, that he kept his foot fetish to himself until his forties. And well, I'd like to think that meeting me and being with me helped unlock all that, but he's, he's embraced it now. And he, he talks about that a little bit in an, in another interview. And sometimes that is what it takes for us to, start to own these parts of ourselves that we have disowned. We make the acquaintance of someone who has already done the work, who is a little further advanced than we are with being themselves. And in their presence, we start to feel permission to take some risk, to let them see these parts of ourselves that we have mostly kept hidden from others. Right. So there's a lot of factors that keep people from being themselves. Politics, religion, location. Can you talk about some of these factors and how this this storm brews with all these things that get in the way? I say time is a factor. Also, where in the world you grow up and when you grew up there, because certainly in my lifetime, I've seen lots of changes in the evolution of people becoming more open with the subject of sexuality. We've seen lots of changes in laws. You know, the the birth control pill came out in 1960, but in a lot of states in this country, contraception was illegal for married couples. And in many other states, it was definitely illegal for people who were single. So in many states, when the pill came out, there were women who could not take it, could not get a prescription because of the state laws around contraception. It was not until later in the 60s that uh, the laws changed enough so that women could have access to the birth control pill, whether they were single or married. That occurred in my lifetime. And so that's just one example. Uh, we, We tend to think of it as being prohibition around the sodomy laws or around same-sex marriage. But there there was a time in this country also when straight people of different 
racial backgrounds could not marry, could not have a relationship together, that that was criminalized. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of that stems from religion, which in turn influences politics. You know, sexuality is not really celebrated in any religion. Uh, The only exception to that may be some of the pagan traditions that celebrate fertility and sexual expression. But those are not the most common religions that we see around the world today. They're not the top three. You, I think, live in Palm Springs. I live in Wilton Manors, Florida. Mm -hmm. So did I. We live in the two gayest places in the country. Mm -hmm. But you got to remember that there are gay men growing up in rural Alabama, rural Montana, even parts of California that are not very progressive. And so their exposure to sex positive education, sexuality education is very limited. Now, you know, fortunately, they have the internet. We didn't have that when I was growing up. I joke and say, you know, my access to porn was you find one porn magazine that you can get your hands on, and that has to get you through high school, (laughs) unless you're lucky enough to find another. Uh You know, if your dad had a subscription, then Mm -hmm. you at least had to wait a month until anything new came out. Mm -hmm. That's just not the case today. (laughs) Uh, And so fortunately, people can get education through the World Wide Web. But a lot of the education they get there is not fact-based either. You have to really pick and sort through it to know what's real and what isn't. Right. Well, and porn is not educational, really. You don't see negotiations happening before two people get into a BDSM scene or even just fuck. I mean, there's communication that goes on that that they don't portray in a porn scene. Right. And there's lots of preparation for that scene that Mm -hmm. you don't see either. Right. You know, so the, the electrician who knocks on the door, you didn't (laughs) see everything he did before he showed up at the house. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, Would you say if you could, if you could do um, a graphic, an image, an image of the United States, uh, where the red zones were where people were most sexually dysphoric. And then we had orange, yellow, and then the, the white zones where people were the least dysphoric, most comfortable in their own skin, had sexual integrity. Would we see that the, the white zones were in these gay meccas and metropolitan areas or not necessarily? Well, I think you would see that. I think it would be pretty much in line with political maps that we look at that are red or blue. And and we also know that rates of HIV continue to be most prominent in those redder areas where there is less sexuality education, where um, people are most uncomfortable with discussions about sexuality. So people are not comfortable talking to their physicians. Uh, They're not talking to their partners. Uh, Sex is still very much happening in secrecy. It's it's Mm -hmm. very hidden. It's not 
something that people will feel like they can be open and honest about. And so I think that's probably a good reflection also of where in the country people are still very much living in the closet, whatever closet that might be, the gay closet, the kinky closet, yeah. the, the, the trans closet, the poly closet. There, there are lots of different closets people yeah. come out of, and sometimes we have to come out of many of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've come out, come out of a few myself. Uh, <laughs> much of my audience is men, perhaps 100% heterosexual, bisexual, transgender men. Would you say that there's any one population there that is, mm, has more sexual integrity than the other or one group that has, you know, more issues than the other, or is it kind of the same across the board? I, I think that men in general are pretty similar, regardless of our sexual orientation in terms of certainly how our bodies work, but our sexual appetites. What we know historically is that men tend to have higher sexual appetites than women. We also know that uh, men are more likely to be diagnosed with what we clinically call a paraphilia. Paraphilias include things like um, fetishes, or uh, what we would cons- what we casually refer to as kink. Clinically, it's a paraphilia, hmm. and so we know that men more than women are inclined toward kinky thoughts, kinky behavior, fetishes. That tends to be true across cultures, and so that's some ways that men are different from women. I think some ways gay men are different from straight men is that. Straight men don't really have to spend a lot of time in life contemplating their sexual orientation because when they look around the world, they mostly see reflections of themselves. Gay men, on the other hand, real early in life are aware that we seem a little different from straight men. And we spend more time thinking about that. We spend more time contemplating our sexuality, asking ourselves these difficult questions about sex, whereas straight men are given a prototype and and it's not a a good prototype. It often does not work for straight men, but it is the benchmark they aim for. Mm -hmm. And that's more of the monogamous heteronormative heterosexual expression that we tend to see among straight couples. Straight men probably have more challenges accepting themselves in adulthood, whereas gay men have spent a lot of time already thinking about it. And among our culture of gay, bisexual, trans men, we're already more tolerant of diversity. We we tend to be pretty accepting of each other in ways that straight men have difficulty accepting diversity. And I'm generalizing here. That's not true of all straight men, but it's been my work with straight men that is most challenging sometimes to get them over the hump to self-acceptance. Straight men, their sexuality is reinforced as they grow up. They don't have to deal with what gay guys have to deal with. Very simple, easy to understand. 
and it's kind of changing for, for gay men with, you know, in movies and television, we're getting more and more, mm, I guess, role models or images of what we can be like open. And then we have someone like Pete Buttigieg in politics. It's like, wow, you know, he's, he's really become sort of an icon though. It does make me a little sad. He's it. It's such a heteronormative relationship that he's portraying. It's kind of the same relationship we've been taught is what you're supposed to have when you're straight, this monogamous. Now he's got two kids, the house with the white picket fence, you know, you talk about monogamy in the book. Can you talk a little bit about that here and how normal that is or not normal? Well, I think it's what most people expect. They expect that their relationships will be monogamous, but we are not really designed as monogamous creatures. The human brain is not a monogamous brain for men or women women tend to be inclined more toward monogamy than men, but it doesn't really come natural. Monogamy is a choice. It is a decision to surrender all other options. Most of us are serial monogamous at best. We're, we're monogamous in one relationship for a while, and then we're going to be monogamous in the next relationship. Mm-hmm. And I I don't know if I say this in the book, but I often say it when I talk to clients, if you follow that uh, description, then theoretically, you could be monogamous with a different person every day of the week. Mm -hmm. If that's the only person you're going to have sex with today. Yeah. Lots of people claim monogamy. They claim to value monogamy, but their life doesn't really reflect monogamy. It it reflects that they've had multiple sexual partners throughout their life. The original meaning of the word monogamy was married to one person. It didn't really originally mean sex with only one person. That word has evolved as we have become more fluid with our sexuality. And as uh, fewer and fewer people wait till marriage to have sex. A lot of people, a lot of couples live together. That's really pretty common now before marriage. Mm-hmm. And so monogamy kind of transitioned to reference sex with only one person as opposed to being married to one person. Uh, it's the difference between uh, polygamy, m- multiple marriages, and monogamy. Mm-hmm. In terms of Pete Buttigieg, Uh, And the choices that he's made in his life, lots of gay men make those choices for a monogamous relationship. Lots of gay men want to be fathers and, you know, they adopt children or they have a surrogate or maybe they had a female partner before a male partner and they have children that they bring into the relationship. There are lots of ways to do it and they're all normal. Mm -hmm. There are lots of ways to do it and it be right. The important thing is that it be right for you, mm. that, that you're doing it because it really is what you want. And again, that comes back to the concept of integrity. Just be yourself. Just tell the truth. Just be transparent. 
don't present yourself as something that you are not because you're too afraid to to be who you are. Yeah. Well, I can tell you if Pete Buttigieg was kinky, maybe he is, and out at the bar on the weekends in leather, he would not be in the position he's in today. That's for sure. Right. And, you know, we have seen lots of straight men fall from grace. Politicians. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, Yeah. And same thing with religious leaders, Mm. you know, who are, you know, at the top of their game and they're telling everybody else how to live their life, but they're not in integrity. They have these sex scandals that eventually come out and then we discover how kinky they are. Mm-hmm. that they really were not walking their talk. They were telling everyone else how to live, but they weren't following their own rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you're right. I think if you are in a position of power, uh, lots of people are looking to you for, uh, and their expectations of you are unrealistic. They expect you to live above higher standards than what most of us can accommodate because it's, it's, not always normal or reasonable. I mentioned my audience earlier. Another part of my audience and guest list is made up of sex workers. And you talk about sex work in the book. Reading between the lines, it seemed like maybe not even needing to read between the lines. You feel there could be value in sex work. I do. And we've seen that in other countries where sex work is legalized. It's decriminalized. Um, I have clients who talk to me about their experiences with sex workers and the value of that for them. Uh, I have met therapists, other clinicians who early in their life were sex workers and said, I came to discover that I was helping people, that I was providing a service, and that people were opening up to me. They were talking to me. They, their time with me was more valuable to them than just the sexual transaction. And when I discovered that about myself, then I decided, you know, maybe I should go back to school and become a therapist. So I've met a few therapists who, at a time in their life, were sex workers. Mm. And it was sex work that was their leaping off point into becoming uh, a therapist. You know, I think there's value in sex surrogacy. We can't really recommend that legally because I could be accused of promoting prostitution. Mm -hmm. You know, I could tell you to get online and meet a stranger and that would be perfectly legal. But if I referred you to someone that I knew to be trustworthy and ethical and yeah, then I could, you know, I could lose my license for that. But a value of sex work is that some people have difficulty meeting others and developing relationships and uh, feeling safe. And they need a, a corrective emotional experience that can be provided through the sex worker that might not be provided through the average person. Mm-hmm. 
So they need someone who is knowledgeable, someone who will be patient, someone who will be compassionate. And when you just get online and try to meet someone, you don't know that they're going to be any of that. Yeah, probably not. (laughs) Sex work is legal in a few counties in Nevada. Mm -hmm. And so, and at other times in this country, it's been legal pretty much all over the country at other times in our American history. But that's certainly not the case now. If you were going to design a workshop for sex workers and you were going to create a few learning objectives in this workshop to help them ensure that their work was therapeutic. Any objectives come to mind, things that you would want them to be able to to do or things that you would like them to know when they left that workshop? Well, I would want them to know that they are they are and they can be a catalyst for change, very powerful transformation for their clients. Mm-hmm. And if they can bring patience and compassion to that experience, that they'll begin to just witness some of that intuitively. It's going to come natural just through their interaction. And, you know, the sex workers that I have met wanted to be sex workers. There, there is still this ongoing myth in our country that people are sex workers because they're being victimized. Right. And, and certainly sex trafficking exists, and that's a completely different subject. But most people who enter sex work do it by choice. It's a chosen career for them. Yeah. We talked about gay meccas, Fort Lauderdale, Palm Springs, San Francisco. And I've lived in all three of those. Sex is readily available. Whether one-on-one or groups, sex parties, they're going to be a lot more available than if you're living in as you said, rural Alabama. And there's a term used to identify guys who have a lot of sex, pigs. And it's it's used in a positive way. Pig sex, being a pig, having lots of sex, lots of partners. Is there too much sex or can you have too much sex? I don't think you can have too much sex. Uh, I think, again, it's about your own appetite. So, you know, something I do encounter sometimes are people having an expectation that they need to be having a lot of sex. I'm, I'm gay, and so therefore I, I live in this Mecca where there are all these sex parties happening. There are lots of porn stars that live around me. I'm supposed to be doing what they're doing. And again, it's not authentic for them. It's not really what they want. They can't keep up with it. For some men, they turn to drugs or alcohol to sedate or medicate themselves to get in an altered state so they can show up and tolerate doing the thing they don't want to do to begin with. Mm. Uh, And that's not integrity either. So if you are a true pig and you want to have a lot of sex partners and you want to go to sex parties and there are things that um, you like to do that fall out of the mainstream, then that's absolutely fine. But 
integrate that, own that. Uh, you shouldn't have to medicate yourself to be able to do it. Sex is pretty wonderful just by itself. Mm-hmm. So to enter some kind of altered state that's going to give you potential consequences in other areas of your life in order to achieve something, pursue something you don't really want is really a little irrational. But if you're a pig and you like being a pig, you're good to go. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know, I don't, I'm not going to sit in judgment of anyone, mm-hmm. but I think the important thing is that you be who you are, mm-hmm. that you acknowledge that and you lean into it. And if you have to be drugged in order to be a pig, are you really a pig? You can put us to sleep and then subject us to all kinds of things, and we can tolerate it because we weren't present. Coming back to your book and how it impacted me, I've been invited to many sex parties over the years, and I've gone to some. It's not for me. The last one that I went to, I did not touch one person. And then left. And I've gone to them over the years because I feel like I should or should try it or I should be able to let go and be that quote unquote pig. And then this year, uh, doing this podcast, uh, reading your book, I realize it's, you know, that's just not in me. If that's again, the, the term solo flexible comes up. You know, it's no wonder I don't go to a sex party and and enjoy it like everybody else does. So I'm a little more comfortable in my own skin, thanks to you. Good. I like hearing that. Um, and that's really what I, it's why I wrote the book. Because I've been saying this to people for many years. And I wanted to get the book out there to shed that message on a, on a broader spectrum of people that uh, I might not ever encounter face to face. And, you know, quite frankly, it's cheaper to buy my book than it is to have a session with me. So uh, (laughs) I I even tell my clients now, buy the book, you know, read it. And and they do. And sometimes they come in uh, and say, oh, I want to talk about this Mm -hmm. chapter because it made me think of something new that I haven't shared here before. Yeah. Since a doctor is typically not going to refer his patients to you, how do you get your your patients? Some physicians do refer to me. Oh. Yeah. Um, I get referrals from other therapists. Mm -hmm. Clients find me on the internet. Uh, They Google me. They might go to websites like Psychology Today and do a search for sex therapist. Um, They might go to the directory for the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, and find me there. Uh, People find me through my website. And then the book has uh, my website, also how to find me on Facebook or Twitter. Is there anything that was left unsaid in that book? Is there going to be a part two? I think that this might be the beginning of a series of books. Uh, I really want to do a book about kink mm. and the sexual integrity of kink. Um, I, I think it's fascinating to really look at the psychology underneath our kinks. 
you know, there are as many different fetishes as you can imagine. It's, it's really li- unlimited, the number of things that can be fetishized. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we learn how that fetish developed, but often we never figure that out. We never can really backtrack and understand how that association between an object or a situation became so sexualized. Right. And it's interesting to me also that so many fetishes are enjoyed without genital stimulation. The experience gets enjoyed, the situation gets enjoyed, even if there's no genital stimulation involved, but it becomes a very erotic experience. Right. And so I, I would like to write a book about that. Uh, there are some stories that have been shared with me. There are some people who have said, you know, if you want to write a book about this, I'd like to to be in it. I'd like to tell my story. And so I think that's probably the next direction I'll go. Hmm. Well, I will definitely read that. Okay. Well, maybe I'll interview you for that. Okay. Uh, that'd be cool <laughs> with me. Is there anything else you'd like to share with listeners before we wrap up? I don't think so. You've uh, you've hit a lot of the highlights today with the questions that you asked. Uh, if I am available for one-on-one consultation, I see people here in my office in Wilton Manors, Florida, or uh, online. About a third of my clients I see online. Uh, they can reach me through the website, and all my contact information is in the book. Right. And of course, I'll post links in the show notes for this episode. Great. Dr. Davidson, thank you very much for being on Sexual Heroes today. Thank you, Robert. I enjoyed it. For information with links about a guest on Sexual Heroes, visit the show notes. And please be sure to follow me on Twitter at Robert Black XXX. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.